0: The banking business model is broken. The question is, how can we rebuild it? Embedded Finance presents a massive opportunity for banks to play a new role in the financial services ecosystem, offering more revenue streams, lower costs, and higher margins. Our new report, Better Banking Business Models, Embedded Finance, and the Path to Growth, is a must-read for banks considering the smartest next step. Head to Bitly Banking as a Service to download the report for free. That's bit.ly. Forward slash banking as a service. It's all one word and all lowercase. Okay, let's get going with today's show. Hello and welcome to FinTech Insider Insights. I'm Sam Mall, and in today's show, we're going to be addressing the topic of financial abuse. An extremely common form of abuse, according to the charity Surviving Economic Abuse, 95% of people who experience domestic abuse are also experiencing some form of economic abuse. And during the pandemic, reports of financial and economic abuse have been on the rise. With many of us now spending the vast majority of our time in our homes, the home can be an even more dangerous place for survivors, and banks now need to step up to deal with the problem. To help dive into this topic, I'm joined by some excellent guests making their fintech insider debut. We have first up Natalie Ledward. She's the vulnerability manager at Monzo Bank. Hey, Natalie, how are you doing?
1: Hey, I'm good. Thank you. How are you?
0: I'm doing well. Are you in lovely Manchester?
1: I am in Manchester. Yeah, so lovely. I
0: I love lovely Manchester. Hey, you got a great job title, vulnerability manager. Can you explain what that means? What is it you do?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, so thank you for having me. Um, at Monzo, I lead our approach to vulnerable customers. So that is to make sure that Monzo Bank understands and considers the needs of all of our customers, especially those that are struggling and most likely to have difficulties with their money. Um vulnerability is obviously a huge spectrum and it covers everything from uh something like a job loss to terminal illness. Um, but our mission is to make money work for everyone. And we can't do that without thinking about customers in difficult circumstances. So that's what I do. Okay.
0: I absolutely love that role and that job title. And I'm gonna say it's the first time I've heard of that. So if there's other companies that have them, well on you, but it's the first time I'm aware of it. Way to go, Monzo. Um, also join us, we have my good friend Jane Barrett, the Chief Advocacy Officer at MX. Hello, Jane. How are you?
2: Good. Thanks, Sam. How you doing?
0: How is beautiful Utah?
2: It's a beautiful day in Utah today. Last gusts <laughs> of fall. I'll take it.
0: <laughs> oh, I miss Utah. Utah was my last um, holiday, everybody, before COVID hit. My very last one back in February. Um, we that did. God we were moment.
2: hanging out up at Sundance. It was delightful. Uh, it was
0: so nice. All right. And last but not least, we also have Dr. Nicola Sharp, founder and chief executive of the Surviving Economic Abuse charity, joining us. And we should add, I'm going to make her blush, um, was just awarded the OBE this past October as part of the Queen's birthday list um, for the U.S. audience That's the most excellent order of the British Empire. That's what OBE stands for. It's a British order of chivalry, rewarding contributions to the arts and sciences, work with charitable and welfare organizations, and public service outside the civil service. She's now the second OBE that I've met, along with Sue Black, Dr. Nicola. Well done, by the way. Well done.
3: Thank you. And I am blushing, just for those (laughs) people who can't see me listening via audio. (laughs) Are, are Are you in London? I'm actually based in Essex, just outside London, so on the east coast of England.
0: All right, so we've pretty much got England and the U.S. covered uh, right now. So with that, this is an incredibly important topic, so let's jump right in. So first up, it's important to establish some context around the topic that we're going to be discussing today. So when we talk about this term financial abuse... And uh, Dr. Nicola, <laughs> I'm going to be calling you that. the whole. Time. I know you're going to be like, call me Nicola. Sorry. Dr. Nicola, when we say that term financial abuse, how would you define that?
3: Well, I suppose I should just clear up a difference between financial abuse and economic abuse because you introduced me as being part of the charity Surviving Economic Abuse. So it might be easier to address that issue now and not confuse listeners. So domestic abuse generally is um, a pattern of controlling behavior. And economic abuse is one form of that control. So it might be physical, sexual, emotional or economic. And economic is important to us because it just goes one step further than financial abuse. So financial abuse is about one partner controlling another's financial well-being. And economic is about them controlling their economic well-being. So moving beyond money and finances into things like access to housing, transportation uh, use of a mobile phone and other tech, um, but also the most basic things such as food and clothing, um, the ability to use utilities, so to kind of flip a light switch. So it just recognizes the broad range of tactics that abusers will use to coercively control their partner.
0: And, you know, one of the things that I found fascinating, Jane, when you and I were, were talking over lunch uh, about two years ago on this topic, was you were telling me some of the warning signs that are out there this and I was blown away the fact that you know cashiers are kind of like a front line of um of of noticing this and seeing that so can you tell me what some of the signs are when we're talking about financial abuse and economic abuse
2: yeah so I mean ultimately it's about control many forms of abuse are around control and Having economic power over another person means that they can't do what they need to do to protect themselves or feed themselves or feed their kids or, you know, get transportation or have access to housing. Like, it is a very powerful way to keep um, victims, you know, within what is a dangerous situation, but usually within the household. So some of the warning signs, and I think the one that really did tip me over was, and it clearly impacted you too, Sam, was the fact that, um, and it is very common at um, checkout, if a victim is checking out their groceries, and they have to pause before they pay and get on the phone and say the total is you know forty three dollars and sixteen cents, and they get on the phone and say the total is forty three and sixteen, and with now instant money transfers, that can, that money can be put in. So just enough money is um, allowed to the victim to enable them to get the food, but still have absolutely no way to get any for themselves. And, you know, usually there are other signs which are a lot harder to see, especially as bankers in terms of, you know, your partner has access to your social security number, for example, has access to your credit rating, can take debt out in your name. That can, you know, if you don't have access to your own financial records, it is very easy for this economic abuse to happen.
0: And and Natalie, you know one of the things that again during that lunch I keep referencing a lunch um, to our listeners about two years ago. I should tell you about the lunch. Two years ago in Austin at a conference, uh, Jane and I went to lunch, and she was telling me about work she was doing with the domestic abuse survivors. And that lunch lasted about two hours because this topic wasn't one I was really aware of. But one of the things that you told me at that lunch is when you think about financial or economic abuse, it goes across all economic lines from you know incredibly poor to wealthy. You know as far as who's uh, affected by this and And you know, Natalie, I'm sure you've actually seen that um, you know, get flagged up you know at your work at Monzo, for example.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's really important um, to kind of not make any assumptions on who who it affects um, and come at it with an open mind. we We've seen a really wide range of customers be affected by this, regardless of you know gender, age, race, background, um, you know, our, our specialist support teams are trained really to kind of spot these potential indicators of abuse and they can be they can be transactional. You know, we're we're a bank, so we can see people's, you know, we've got a lot of information. We can see people's transactions. They can be conversational as well. So, you know, you might get somebody directly disclosing things or they might just be really subtle um sort of mentions of coercion, expressions of dissatisfaction, and and we really need to be open to kind of who that's coming from um, and not like I said, make make any of those assumptions.
0: Uh, Dr. Nicola, I'm curious um, from from your um, expertise on this, one of the things Jane said was this is about control. You know, that control, a lot of this stems from there. I mean, do you agree with that?
3: Yes. As I said in my intro, it's a form of control and there's lots of different forms of control. But what's, I think, really fascinating about economic abuse is that I would say it reinforces and threads through those other forms of control. So if someone doesn't let you use your mobile phone, then you can't call your friends and family to access support if somebody is only putting the exact amount of money in your bank account when you're about to pay for your groceries. So that's a really interesting indicator, Jane. I've not heard of that one before. Uh, That means you don't have any spare money to go and have um, coffee with a friend or family member. So you can see how economic abuse can create isolation. If you have to ask for food before you help yourself to it, if you have to use products which are kind of basic products while your partner uses kind of branded products, over time that can have a real impact on your emotional well-being, in your esteem, Um, the real terror of not knowing if you're going to be able to feed your children and yourself and the degradation of, for example, not being able to buy sanitary products, which we see a lot in the economic abuse space, you know, is really terrifying. If you refuse a demand by the perpetrator, perhaps to take a loan out in your name, which you know that they're going to spend, then you might be physically assaulted for refusing that demand. If you really want something, the abuser might say, OK, I'll give this to you, this economic resource, if you sleep with me, so you can see how it overlaps with sexual abuse. So it's really powerful. And people sometimes think it's kind of the lesser form of abuse. You know, physical, sexual, are kind of somehow more important that we respond to those things. But we would argue absolutely that economic safety actually underpins that physical safety. Because as as Jane said, if you haven't got the freedom to make your own choices, you don't have the resources to leave, you're going to be in that situation for longer than you want to be.
0: Man, and then you then just pile on top of that, a global pandemic. You know, Um, in the UK, you're going through another lockdown. Um, I think for at least another month, if I, if I remember right here in the US, you know, we're pinging over 100,000 cases a day at this point. So we're headed to you know some sort of a shutdown. So, you know, you compound the problem with the pandemic. I mean, Jane, I'm curious from, you know, the work that you're doing out there, um, what kind of effects have you seen for, as far as the pandemic? I'm assuming it's become an, an accelerator or if anything, when it comes around financial abuse.
2: Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's really hard because the headlines can say, you know, it's a pandemic within a pandemic. But, you know, as a data person, we we actually don't know because what is happening is that people have been cut off from previous forms of support. They may have gone to their church, they may have gone to neighbours, to their family. And so if your only option right now is to call the police, that would make sense as to why calls have gone up. But we don't know because we don't know a, a real baseline. But um, there is a correlation, I think it was the National Institute of Health did a study about a hardcore correlation between unemployment and domestic abuse and intimate partner abuse. And, you know, when you have that sort of economic uncertainty that obviously, you know, in the US, um, I think last month, an extra 8 million people slipped into poverty, right? That sort of Stress without the safety nets in place, it it really is truly the. I can't say a perfect storm because it sounds positive. It's it is a you know horrific tsunami of um, things going on that all often will you know if you're predisposed to that in your household lead to an increase in abuse.
0: You know, one thing that just struck me as you were talking about that is, and I, I think it was the New York Times that reported on this, the impact of furloughs um, and that the pandemic has had, especially here in the U.S., uh, minorities and women um, that have left the workforce to, you know, whether take, you know, w- with their kids or their family or everything else. And it, it would be um, depressing, but interesting to know if there's any correlation to the, you know, the numbers that we're seeing for economic or um, domestic abuse because of that. The sheer number of women that have left the workforce um, here in the US. I mean, that's a sobering thought. Um, one thing that our producers had noted in the show notes, this is interesting. According to the Women's Aid's April survey of 293 survivors, almost a third of respondents reported their abuser blaming them for the economic impact of the pandemic on the household. I mean, that is uh, that's a frightening, uh, just a, a frightening statistic in, in all honesty. Um, I'm, I'm curious, uh, Natalie, when the one thing that I love about Monzo, um, well, there's a lot of things I love about Monzo, but one thing that really strikes me is how well you analyze the transactional data you see, right? Because, you know, they say data doesn't lie. Well, you know, uh, but it's interesting what you're able to pull out of that data. And I'm wondering if you've seen anything, uh, unique, um, you know, tying back to the pandemic in this topic.
1: I mean, yeah, absolutely. The, the you know, the pandemic caused an increase in people being pushed into all kinds of difficulties. And we've really seen that reflecting in our customers at Munzo. Um So, you know, our specialist support team did report a rise in the conversations they're having around financial and domestic abuse, which obviously reflects these external reports that, you know, other banks see in this too um we don't have great data on this exact topic from before february so our data isn't great for kind of pre-pandemic but what i can say is you know th- there's a few common trends that we've seen uh, in vulnerable customers at monzo um and the top trends the top things that people are reporting to us you know amongst things like mental health addiction um lot, like job loss um is, is domestic and financial abuse which is you know frightening.
0: And Dr. Nicola, I'm, I'm curious, especially in the work that you do with your charity, when we talk about the pandemic and um, I, I mentioned it as an accelerant. And again, I don't, I think that's a, it's gotta be a different term I could use than that. I guess pouring gasoline on a fire. Um, but are you seeing a spike? Are you seeing numbers go up as, as a result of the pandemic for this?
3: We are definitely seeing more people seeking information about it. What I would say is that the pandemic has created greater opportunity to abuse without accountability. So the social distancing measures, working from home, we're about to enter the second lockdown when we can only go out if we need to go out. It creates the isolation that I was talking about, that other control tactic. It helps perpetrators control their victims and it makes it difficult, as Jane said, for victims to reach out for support. And certainly, if you're with an abuser 24-7, the opportunity to make the phone call to a domestic abuse helpline is really, really very difficult and very dangerous. And that's why we are so impressed with the work of financial institutions such as Monzo. Um, And I'm really interested to hear Natalie say that their calls in relation to domestic abuse have gone up because the conversations that we're having with banks and building societies is that, you know, you as a customer vulnerability, team might be that safe space which victims and survivors don't have access to at the moment you can potentially call your bank and that won't necessarily arouse the suspicion um, of the abuser because you're not calling a domestic abuse charity or helpline so there's this opportunity I think for the stakeholders who weren't traditionally part of the solution to domestic abuse um, to actually become part of that solution and the work of Monzo and a number of the other um, sort of street banks that we work with certainly um, is so very vital in this area we have had a code of practice around how they should respond to banks and building societies in place for the last two years and just to see the step change um, and the way that they are supporting customers um, is you know for someone who's been working in this area since economic abuse wasn't named it wasn't in any kind of legislation certainly within England and Wales and the banks would do very little and to kind of see the difference that has been made um, is just hugely encouraging and rewarding um, because fundamentally we speak to victims and survivors who tell us that, that it made all the difference in the world to them. Um, and you can't hope for a kind of better feedback than that, really.
0: Yeah, Jane, one of the things you had mentioned to me over that lunch, um, I even remember the name of the restaurant, Jane. That's how good it was. Wow.
2: It was blue, it was it was blue
0: something. How's that? <laughs> but one of the things that you had mentioned to me over lunch was even um, something as simple as setting up a code word on your account. You know, um, can, can you expand on that a little bit, that, that concept of that?
2: So... I'll I'll take a couple of steps back. You know, at MX, we work with financial institutions and fintechs to provide data services and software that help people engage with their money, right? So it is, and, you know, we have 30 million people on our platform. We have an enormous amount of data. And at that high level, like, the acceleration of digital actually in the pandemic has been, you know, significantly faster. But I think these use cases are Moving so fast that when you're just trying as an institution to service, you know, to surface your account balance and maybe help you set a goal, to do things like, you know, how do we train a call center to be looking for signs of abuse, it really does then come down to the, you know, the mission and the goals of the executive teams within that institution. Um, What we've seen, and if we can just talk about transparency generally, that when um, when someone can access their data, their abuser can often access it as well, right? So if you've left home and you've checked into a hotel and you've swiped to check into that hotel, you know, anyone that can get that access, then it's actually not, you know, necessarily safe because, you know, the look, it's my wife, she's checked in, I'm just going to check in on her, that sort of thing, right? So that transparency does need to work both ways. And I think everyone who works in, in data and frankly, customer service Really does need to bring this nuance to the table around, you know, not all transparency is good. And if someone has put a block on their account, if they've called a call center and said, I have a joint account, but is there a way for me to do transactions without my partner seeing? That should be a giant red flag. And there should be a follow up question. And again, um, you know, Nicola and Natalie know better than I do in terms of just what those steps are to take. But it would be great to see the financial industry. Step into that realm because some have done it and they've done it really well.
0: Yeah, I mean, it just—it's amazing. Just in the in short conversation we've had so far, um, you know, the amount of training you can do with frontline staff. I, I actually had this conversation with my 18-year-old daughter, Alex, who uh, has been working retail. So she's working a cash register, and it was the same kind of thing. It was like, you know, it's amazing some of these things that you could pick up on and you really want to encourage whether it be call centers um the frontline staff or heck for that matter this gets back to the importance of diversity in your product development right to be aware of these i don't even want to call them edge cases cuz this isn't an edge case right it's a uh, But entry. it gets back to diversity yeah as a point of entry um so you know it's so much to to take into account for this topic all right so folks uh, we're going to take a quick pause here to shout out to our sponsors for this episode and we'll be right back this episode is sponsored by Pento, the UK's first automated payroll platform. Say goodbye to clumsy spreadsheets, endless emails with external payroll providers, and manual payments. Pento lets you run payroll in just a few clicks. It calculates taxes, integrates with platforms like Zero, and makes all the payments and reports to HMRC and pension providers for you. Go to Pento.io forward slash insider to run payroll for free for the rest of the year. That's Pento.io forward slash insider. This episode is also brought to you by Jack Henry Digital, the pioneers of personal digital banking. They're reviving the vision of financial service institutions being on a first-name basis with customers by offering a platform for personal, human-centered service that puts the customer first. Your customers experience immediate accessibility, while your employees get cloud-based, core-connected tools to offer service at the moment of need. To learn more, explore the team's latest insights at jackhenrydigital.com. We love making podcasts at 11FS, and this isn't our only one. If you haven't checked out our sister podcast, InsureTech Insider, then you're missing out because we've published some of our best ever episodes over the past few months. From the future of work to the biggest industry InsureTech names, there's a topic in there for anyone who wants to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Head to ii.11fs.com, that's ii.11fs.com, to start listening, or just search InsureTech Insider on your podcast provider. Thanks, and now on with the show. All right, well, now we want to talk a little bit about how we protect folks from abuse. And so, I think one of the very first places we should start is who really has the responsibility to, you know, to actually protect individuals, and, and how do you go about doing that? So, Natalie um, at Monzo, how do you approach this?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, for what it's worth, I think it's everyone's responsibility to Amen. you know think about how we can protect survivors. Um, but for banks, there's, there's so much that we can do to raise awareness, to encourage disclosure, uh, to make sure that staff are trained to spot signs and then to feel equipped to have those open conversations and know where to direct survivors to get help.
0: You know, if, if I remember right, one of the things that you've done at Monzo is you've got an in-app traceless messaging. Can you expand a little bit on that? What does that mean?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so we have a tool in our app called Share With Us. It can be found through various help articles, um, one of which is simply titled Talking to Us About Domestic and Financial Abuse. Um, So searching abuse uh, in the help section of the Monzo app takes you right to it. The tools are a way to basically allow customers to proactively share their circumstances with us. So once a customer types something in and hits share, the message is sent directly to our specialist support team and it kind of just skips the frontline support team it leaves no trace in the app in, in the way that using the chat function of the app does. Um, so it's really great for sharing anything sensitive, which obviously is so often the case when it comes to vulnerability. Um, so basically, if there's anything that affects the way our customers deal with their money or their relationship with Monzo uh, as their bank, um, we obviously think it's really worth telling us. And so we can use that knowledge to support them in a way uh, that suits their needs. Um, we found it particularly useful in this case, um, when supporting survivors of abuse because of the traceless aspect of the tool, it's a really great way to let us know when it's safe to communicate, to set up code words that can trigger various actions on a customer's behalf, like freezing their account or contacting emergency services.
0: You know, Dr. Nicola, one thing that, that struck me as we, as we're talking about this, I mean, when we're talking about financial abuse and economic abuse, um, you know, And and you're thinking about the isolation that's happening, you know, all over the world right now, this really kind of blends over into that concept of elder abuse too. You know, I I was just thinking about that, how this is, it's an ever expanding impact when you think about where all this can go. So when you hear solutions like this from Monzo, I'm assuming that really gets you, uh, I guess, excited is a good word or happy to see financial institutions stepping in and doing solutions like this.
3: The involvement of financial institutions is so needed and traditionally, as I said, they've not been kind of part of what we call the coordinated community response to domestic abuse. So to see the partners within that response broaden out from mostly statutory services and and specialist domestic abuse services um, is just fantastic because perpetrators will use financial systems um, and manipulate those who work for them to continue the control over the victim And that can happen even post separation. So some financial products, for example, which are jointly held, like a joint bank account um, or a joint mortgage, which I know is quite UK focused, but kind of the joint finance for a house um, can be mechanisms for ongoing control. So for financial institutions to recognise that and to say we will start taking action. Uh, We will not let this control continue is, as you say, uh, really exciting. I don't know if that's the right word, but certainly a real step forward and will make such a difference for victims and survivors, certainly. I think the financial abuse piece um, around different individuals is a really important one to draw out a little bit because the dynamics will be slightly different. And it's important that the solutions, um, including tech solutions, understand those differences and those dynamics. And also a recognition that older people might also be experiencing domestic abuse and might have done for many, many years. So we in the UK have a system where if someone is murdered by their partner, and at the minute we have two women a week, one man every five weeks killed by a current or former partner, we have a process of looking back and seeing what happened. You know, all those victims will have had a bank account. Um, We see economic abuse within all of those cases. But sometimes the people who explore those murders will decide because the couple is older that actually it might have been caused by stress uh, because one of the um, partners might be caring for the other in their old age and the abuse is seen as something caused by external factors as opposed to the ongoing control that might be experienced by an older person. So it's kind of really important to understand you know, the kind of context in which the abuse is taking place if you're going to respond to it appropriately. So I think, again, as Natalie said, it's about um, coming to all these things with an open mind and saying just because this is an older person, this is financial abuse caused by stress from caring, versus actually this might be 50 years of abuse and what we're seeing actually is the first sign and we're reaching out to the victim for the first time you know, in that period of years. So as I said, really important just to understand how um, the abuse of power might be used differently in different contexts um, and within different relationships.
0: Jane, I'm curious from your perspective, um, for those that don't know what Jane, um, besides having a ton of executive and board level roles, uh, is also as a successful uh, company founder with Goldbean um, as an example of that. Um, I'm curious, Jane, in in your experience, have you come across the title of a vulnerability manager before? Because that's new for me. I've never heard that role.
2: Never once. And I'm thrilled that it exists. And I'm thrilled to meet you, Natalie. And I hope everybody implements as a priority for 2021. Let's go.
0: It's a, I mean, it really, I've never heard of that role before. Um, you know, I was talking about having diversity on your teams when you're designing product. And, and Jane, you know, you've done this, uh, you know, you, you have quite a bit of experience we're talking about product design because Goldbeam was in the wealth um, space when, when you worked there. But um, the, that gets back to that. Um, Dr. Nicola, you made this point. Context is everything and understanding context and understanding these use cases. You know, Jane, I, I I just find that to be incredibly, this whole conversation, incredibly striking on why diversity is needed so much on your teams. That's one thing MX really does well. I'm, I'm a cheerleader for MX. I think anybody that knows me knows that. I really love the company. But that concept of why you need diversity of ages, sex, gender, you take your pick for the teams. If anything, this whole conversation really emphasizes that need.
2: Yeah, it's it's interesting in that we often try and solve cultural problems with technology solutions and, you know, one of the biggest cultural issues. I mean, abuse is a massive cultural taboo, but guess what? So is talking about money and we're launching people out into the world with models from like 1950 where the man takes off terror of the money, even in these modern days. So if there's one thing that us tech people can do is to really talk more often about this taboo that everyone should have access to their own financials. Even if you have joint accounts, you should know what your credit score is. You should know what your accounts are. Oh, wait, what is this weird thing on my credit report? Oh, it's not an error. It was my partner, right? That's the sort of, you know, our our mission at uh, MX is empowering the world to be financially strong. And literally, step one of empowerment is transparency and access. And if we can't enable people to access their money, right? Right, from a technology perspective, which you know we can't. this tech exists. Now it's around bringing um sort of the cultural norms. and fintechs have helped a lot with this. I think mobile banking's helped a lot with this for it to be totally normal to have your banking up on your phone and to check in where you are, right? There's 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 no shame in that, right? And I think if we can normalize that as a culture and as an industry, like, that's a huge win, and you know, potentially will save a lot of lives and a lot of heartache in the future.
0: You know, at Eleven FS, we are massive fans of fintech companies. You know, we we obviously we talk about them constantly in our podcast, um, and and you know, we have team members and founders that came out of the industry. Jason Bates being a great example is one of the co-founders with Monzo. Uh, so we've always been close to the team. But but Natalie, I think. This is really a chance to give Monzo and other companies like it a shout out because you have driven the larger financial institutions to adopt solutions like this. You know, um, didn't you guys? And I remember a while ago you entered or you created something that um, you could go and block the MCC for gambling, right? Do I remember that correctly? You guys did that a while yeah, ago. Yeah,
1: yeah, spot on. Yeah, gambling block. <laughs> yeah,
0: so a good example of that. I mean, do you think fintechs? Um, just by their very nature, are more prone to introduce solutions like this? Or do you think the, the banks are stepping up and, and introducing these also before you all prompt them to do it?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think I think we have a, a unique advantage, um, a real advantage, just in being able to turn what I think is, you know, the traditional approach, which is quite reactive, into more proactive approaches with with, you know, actions and tools that customers can can use so on the proactive side tools like share with us um, would be amazing to see that being something like an industry standard um, a safe form of communication with your bank I think is essential um, so providing those people with the tools and support they need and raising awareness of what's available um, is really key um, but yeah
0: yeah I, I agree with you I, I think um, that is a point I constantly strike when I talk about what, what fintech's have done. We talk a lot about democratizing finance, but for me, one of the best things that fintechs have done is prompted the large financial institutions to action. You know, to take on other solutions. The shelf life of new products is so short right now, and, and we all know that, right? You, you can come up with a great solution, uh, but the concept of it going across the industry and it being implemented is everything. So let's talk a little bit about that. Let's 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 talk about what banks can do to prevent abuse? And uh, Dr. Nicola, I'd love to start with you, you know, uh, because I know you provide advice that charity does and works with financial institutions and other sectors on this. But when you look at what the banks can do to prevent abuse, what are one of the one or two areas that you'd like to see more action on?
3: I think when Jane talked about the double taboo, we don't talk about abuse and we don't talk about money. So normalizing conversations about money, certainly when... Couples come into branch or they are thinking at home about how they're going to apply for a joint financial product. Having conversations about what that means, um, what joint and severable liability looks like, what would happen um, if they did break up. It's not a conversation that you want to have, certainly not at the beginning of um, a relationship. But to know that you need to look after your financial independence. And I suppose part of that conversation is about what money means to you. Um, So again, back to that piece about how it can symbolise freedom. It can enable you to make the decisions that you want to be able to make. So really going into a relationship, having those conversations about money. Um, And if a partner doesn't want to have those conversations about money and insists that a bank account is closed so that a joint bank account can be opened, again, that would be a serious red flag because why wouldn't you, as part of a caring couple, Um, want your partner to be financially secure if something were to happen so I think conversations are just hugely important and to really look at the systems the policies um, the products themselves to say you know can we design these in such a way that there are safeguards um, in place if domestic abuse is happening you know is there a way of communicating um, as Natalie's talked about Silently, and so a partner is not aware and won't be aware of that conversation. um, Should they kind of go back at their laptop or you know go into the internet search history? Um, So, kind of really what we call kind of closing down both the opportunities to abuse and kind of expanding the avenues for victims and survivors to be able to speak out. Um, I was really struck at the beginning of the conversation where you talked about kind of transactional um, signs. I think another sign for us is behavioral, so um, someone who might deliberately. Um, spoil the application because they want the bank to call them back to have a conversation about that application they were making online because they want the opportunity to talk to someone and to actually say, I don't really want to be making this application. Um, The customer who gets in touch having made um, an application for a loan who says, actually, what's the cooling down period? Do I have time to change my mind? If I did want to change my mind, how would I do that? There's kind of lots of points at which a, a customer might test the water and it's kind of really important that those are all kind of considered um, and, you know, an open conversation to have because one thing um, I think a lot of professionals um, are scared of is making the situation worse. The one thing that a victim survivor will say to you is I wish somebody has asked me. So I think even to kind of, you know, you might do it clumsily, but actually it's really important to let a a customer know that you do care um, because we know a lot of customers don't actually expect anything off the bank, so they won't be asking proactively. But if the questions are being asked, gives them um, what I call an invitation to tell. It says, we care about this issue. We care about you as a customer and we will support you. And again, that can be hugely powerful.
0: I love that phrase, an invitation to tell. That's a, <clears throat> that is a that uh, is a a great phrase. Hey, Jane, I'm curious from your perspective, let's look at the US in particular, right? Obviously what we're going through with the pandemic, um, job loss, everything else that's happening here. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of moves by very large banks here as far as, um, putting money aside around social issues, um, as they should, in in my opinion. And I'm glad they're doing that. Do you think we're seeing anything along the same lines when it comes to financial or, or domestic abuse?
2: Um, I think if you look at it within the broader realm of just financial health, right? And it's taken, and you know how long I've been yelling down the well around this for, Sam, right? So if you consider someone... Um, to be financially healthy, they may have a lot of assets, but you know the data on say a couple might show one one partner with a very healthy credit score and another one with a terrible one like that should be a flag right? You should be interested in the financial health of all of your account holders and start to pull that data apart and again we're seeing step one of financial health, which is at least engaging in the conversation. Like, how do you move people's financial lives forward? Um, you know, as you know, I'd spent my first career in in marketing and data-driven marketing and the amount of money and sort of intellectual firepower that's used to take data and turn it into how do we sell more stuff, right? It's always been about product sales. If we can move into this next generation of financial um services that is about outcomes. How do we improve financial outcomes for our customers? And then the downstream effect of, you know, you've moved me from someone who's been paycheck to paycheck to have a little bit of savings, right? Even just, and that's the vast majority of, well, not right now, but the vast majority of people tend to hover in this paycheck to paycheck living on the edge. If they have a little bit of an emergency fund and, you know, savings, then they have options in life, right? If they can put their assets to work and have passive income, they have even more options in life. But institutions have not taken that step to date around how do we look at the outcomes and how do we move people up this economic ladder? And frankly, this is what got me... You know, really digging deep into economic abuse and intimate partner violence was that I could talk all day long about how to get out of paycheck to paycheck to saving to investing to get yourself wealthy. I had no idea what was going on below that. Like, what does financial crisis look and feel like? And what truly exploded my mind was that it was people across the entire spectrum. You know, I, I volunteered in a shelter where a neurosurgeon was coming in regularly like right. an actual brain surgeon who, you know, <laughs> operating on people's brains by day and sleeping in a shelter at night because she had no other options, right? So we have to really open our minds around what this actually looks like and redefine what financial health truly is. And then everything else can follow.
0: So so Natalie, taking that challenge, because you have an active role at Monzo, right? Um, and a responsibility for that. So when we talk about how can you embed protective features in as part of the design. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how you do that at Monzo? We we'll keep talking about these edge cases. How do you ensure these are incorporated in and the solutions you're doing?
1: Yeah, um of course. I mean, so at Monzo we're really lucky that, you know, it's it's baked into our mission to make when you work for everyone, considering vulnerable customers, you know, it's really deeply embedded into our culture and brand anyway. So people are thinking of it, but um, one of the things that you know, we've done in the past, um, we're really big on user research and community feedback. Um, and before coronavirus, we'd, we'd basically been running listening events where we, we partnered with a charity and invited members of the community into the office to share their experiences of banking. Um, so it's a real opportunity for team members to meet the people they're designing products for and to kind of get like organic insights to inform the work. Um, So a great example was earlier in February, we did um, an event in partnership with Royal Association for Deaf People. We invited around 20 people from the deaf community to the office and we made sure we had designers, engineers and researchers in the room. We basically led a discussion to discover what barriers they'd experienced when, when banking in the past so that we could identify these pain points in the customer journey at Monzo. And then on the back of that event, we, we now make it clear in the sign-up journey that customers can use sign language in a selfie video. So I can really see, you know, this being like a similar application. We'd really love to do a similar event um, in the same format would work well, where we invite experts along with survivors of abuse, you know, for them to tell their stories and for them to meet the product teams. And I, I think it's really, you know, they're the people that these ideas need to come from. No us.
0: So I'm going to be a geek. I'm sorry, everybody. I am one. Um, I'm going to give an example of this. And then, Dr. Nicola, I'm going to give you the last word. But um, a, a case example of this. So there's a very popular Star Wars show on the Disney Channel. I told you I was going to geek. And you all are laughing. I can't help it. It's called The Mandalorian. It's really popular right now. But this actually happened. For The Mandalorian in the last episode, they hired an actual deaf actor to play one of the Tuscan Raiders and help create the Tuscan sign language. They did this because a hearing person who knew ASL suggested it. So it's our responsibility when we're in the room to look around and see who's missing. That was one of my favorite Twitter posts. Um, It's about getting everyone into the room, is it not, Dr. Nicola? Looking, I mean, that's what started this whole conversation was Jane, when she moved to Utah, volunteering some time with domestic abuse survivors. It's, it's bringing in those charities at Monzo and bringing in organizations like yours, Dr. Nicola, is it not?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think I'm really pleased that we're gonna end this on survivors and them informing everything that we do. Um, certainly in the same way as Jane became involved in this work, it was when I spoke to survivors directly and heard about how economic abuse threaded through their experiences. Um, And if I'm honest, you know, as we said, this could happen to any of us. And when you look at um, people who kind of reflect yourself, you think, you know, this could have been me. And you look at the difficulties that they have um, and some of the potential that they're not able to realise because of what's happened to them. And, you know, the process they're going to have to go through to rebuild their lives because of the abuse that they experienced. And certainly, The change that we have seen through our work has always been informed by the power of victims and survivors and their words. We did some training last week um, for a bank in the UK, and it was the developers, the designers in the room who were absorbing the information and immediately saying, this is how we could change this product. This is what we could do here. If we can share the experiences of victims and survivors uh, with other people if we can inspire them and impassion them and create champions, then for us, certainly through our experience, that's what's created change. Um, So everything that we do is informed by the experience of victims and survivors. We work with a group of over 100 victims and survivors to do that every day. And to see organisations such as Monzo um, doing the same, other organisations in a similar space to us in the US, similarly being so survivor-informed, it's just, you know, it's kind of the starting and the ending point, I think, for us. So I love that that's, that's how we've kind of got to, I suppose, as part of this conversation. Really, really important.
0: Yeah, folks, you're not going to get a better wrap up than that. So I'm just going to stop <laughs> right there because that was outstanding. Um, thanks, everybody, for listening today. Um, I know this has been a sobering discussion, but it's an incredibly important one. And I want to thank each of our guests for joining us today. And I want to give them a chance to let people know where they can find out more about each of them and and even more importantly, the organization they represent. So Natalie, let's start with you. Um, and, and Monzo.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, so you can find me on Twitter and LinkedIn. I'm always happy to say hello. If you search my name, Natalie Ledward, uh, I'll come up. Um, there's not many Natalie Ledwards, I don't think. <laughs> um, and then you can also find out more about Monzo and the work that we're doing as a team um, on our website, monzo.com. Um, we've got some really great detailed blog posts um, in, in this area. Um, and then if you're a customer already, you can find out more in the
2: help section of the app.
0: All right. And Jane, how about you and MX?
2: Sure. Uh, MX.com for our breadth of services and um, just how we're bringing our mission to life. You can find me on also LinkedIn and Twitter. It's Jane Barrett. And uh, Sam, I do want to give a shout out to you. I hope that a long line of men will follow you in terms of educating themselves and bringing this sort of nuance into their organizations. Because... I hope to, um, as you know, never be on an old female panel talking about a traditional female thing. So I'm so glad you do this. Um, <laughs> but yeah, let's check in every couple of years and maybe soon it'll be an old dude panel talking about this. That'll be awesome.
0: Yeah, would it be nice for the old dude panels to just be the mannels, just kind of be a thing of the past? It's not that hard, for everybody. Let me just go <laughs> ahead and say that. All right, and last but not least, Dr. Nicola, how about you and your organization?
3: So similarly, I can be found on LinkedIn and Twitter. So Nicola Sharp for LinkedIn, Nicola Jane Sharp for Twitter. There's quite a few Nicola Sharps around, so I had to distinguish myself somehow. Um, and in relation to the charity, www.survivingeconomicabuse.org, we can be found on Twitter at C, which is S-E-A, so the spelling of C, resource, resource, And we have a number of resources, both for victims and survivors, on our website, but also for the professionals supporting them. And can I just also say I've been a bit super excited to be on this um, panel today. Um, Natalie, we have um, kind of met in Twitter world and through various other articles online. I know your name, so it's been fantastic to hook up in this space. And actually, um, I visited America and I actually set up the charity Inspired on some of the work that I'd seen. Um, And I actually went to Austin, Texas, which is where you two met. So that just feels like a really interesting of all the random places I went to. That's where that conversation started for you, Sam. Um, And it's when I met two of the kind of leading researchers in the economic abuse space, um, Angela Litwin and Adrian Adams. Um, So it's been really exciting to kind of make those connections today. So thank you for doing that virtually, because I'm not sure it would have happened in a a pre-pandemic world for me, at least.
0: (laughs) Yeah. All stories go back to Austin. <laughs> that's, that's scary. Um, as folks for, as for me, um, you can find me on Twitter at Sam Mall or on LinkedIn. What I will tell you for parting last word from me, um, y- you want to make change, then change your behaviors, go out, actually donate some of your time, honestly, uh, get uncomfortable. I think that's a good thing to do. And I know, um, you know, Jane and, and what she did kind of inspired me as far as, uh, that's concerned and the work she did and the same with our other guests. Everybody, thanks for listening. Um, If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast. And don't forget to leave us a review. It helps make it better and helps others find the show, as always. If you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or FinTech Insider or simply email podcast at 11FS.com. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.